John chapter 9 deals with a remarkable healing that Jesus performed. It was on a Sabbath day, and Jesus healed a man who was born blind. In the previous section that we looked at, it had to do with the actual healing that Jesus did. Where what Jesus actually did, how we performed it, was he spit on the ground. He made some mud in the dirt out of the spit, which let's just agree to it. It's very gross, but he did it. He put the mud made out of spit and dirt on the man's eyes, and he told him to go wash at the pool of Siloam. The the man did this, and when he washed, his eyes were able to see. It was a miracle of God, and this man who had been born blind could now see. Well, the fact that Jesus performed this miracle on the Sabbath was a huge controversy among the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Jesus never broke God's command of the Sabbath, but he did often break the human interpretations, the man-made rules that surrounded God's command. And this was the controversy. Some of the religious leaders said, well, look, uh, maybe he really is a prophet or sent from God. Other religious leaders said, no way, he's a sinner. They debated over the issue so much that they asked the man himself, who was born blind and now healed, for his opinion on the matter. That's where we come to verse 17. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes, he said, he is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who received his sight. So they ask him, come on now, mister, you're the one who received the healing. You're the one who can now see Who do you think he is? And did you see what the man said? He replied right there in verse 17, he is a prophet. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you and I know that Jesus is a prophet, but he's far more than a prophet. What I'm just trying to get at is that this man still had a very elementary understanding of who Jesus was. You see, first, he didn't know anything about Jesus. First, he just called Jesus the man, the man who told me to do this. Now he says, Jesus is a prophet, no doubt because he said, you go down to this pool, and he didn't say it specifically, but the implication was, you'll see again, and he did. You know what I think is amazing? This man had a very elementary understanding about who Jesus was, yet he had genuinely received something from Jesus and Jesus was moving in his life. It draws my mind immediately to a principle that I just want to speak about for a moment. And the principle is simply this, that you don't have to understand it all before you receive it. Friends, there are amazing depths in the Bible, in theology, and they're interesting to talk about. You know, we could spend all day long to talk about predestination, about God's election, about uh, how the uh, natures of Jesus uh, is between the divine and the human, the hypostatic union, pre and sublapsarianism. You don't even know any of those terms. Don't worry about it. I mean, we could go on and on, but you know what? It's very profound to just simply say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now, I think God has his depths for us in biblical understanding and in theology and all that, but nobody should be intimidated by that. Jesus says, you can come to me right now with a very simple faith. You come to Jesus with a simple and sincere faith, and Jesus will say, let's get started. I love you. I'll work in your life. 
It's not like he says, well, when you get smart enough, then I'll start working in your life. Well, when you can pass this level of exam about theology or Bible knowledge, then I'll start working in your life. No, he'll receive you just now as you are. He says, then let's get to work and let me start building these things in your life. But nobody should be intimidated by the depths because Jesus will come and meet us in the very shallow water. Now, that was true of the man, but notice verse 18 says that the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind. In other words, the religious leaders found it easier to deny that the man was ever blind to begin with than to admit that Jesus had worked a miraculous work in the man. They found it very easy, easier to deny that the man was blind. So they wanted to verify it. They thought, well, let's ask his parents. If he was born blind, wouldn't the parents know whether or not he was born blind? That's where we come to verse 19. And they asked them, the parents, saying, is this your son whom you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Now, friends, I I seem to think that when Jesus asked them, is this really your son? Was he really born blind? And and the parents said, yes, he's our son. Yes, he was really born blind. Now he sees, that should have ended the whole controversy. But it didn't end it. It didn't end it. Because the religious leaders didn't want it to end there. They wouldn't take a satisfactory answer for a response. So they pressed the the parents. And, And the parents said, look, we know this is our son. We know he was born blind. But how he can see? Who made him see? We're not gonna answer that question. They were so afraid that they very deliberately, very demonstrably threw the matter back upon. They said, ask him, ask him. Friends, I, I believe that it's in the nature of a parent, even a parent dealing with their adult children, it's in the nature of a parent to protect their children, isn't it? I, I mean, sometimes not always for the good. Sometimes it's better for us to say, go out, kids, and, you know, learn. There's some things that our kids have to learn in the school of hard knocks, just like we had to learn. But it's just sort of instinctive to a parent to protect your children. Do you notice how they're not protecting their son at all? Not at all. They're distancing. They're hanging him out. Why? Because they were so afraid. Look at what it says there in verse 22. If anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. They would be excommunicated. They would be excluded from synagogue life, from community life, and from temple life. Usually initially for a period of 30 days, and then more beyond that if it was merited. And the parents were so afraid of this, so afraid of this exclusion from community life, synagogue life, temple life, that they said, no way, we're not going to protect our own child. You know, it makes me kind of think about the practice of excommunication. The ancient Jews had it in their own way. In our modern context, it really doesn't have a lot of meaning, to tell you the truth. Friends, I've been a pastor for uh, more than 30 years, and there haven't been many times where we've had to say to a person at a church, you're not welcome here anymore. Rarely. I I can count it on one hand over 30 years, and I thank God for that. 
But you know, I've thought about it. Even when we have had to say it, I don't know how much it means. Because honestly, isn't it really easy for a person just to say, okay, I leave your church. I'm just going to go to another church and pretend like nothing happened. There's no sense of putting them outside the community. And when you think, well, what can we do about that? How can we make it different? I have no idea. I don't know. I don't think it's right for us to set up some rigid hierarchy that that, that manages these things like a governing body over every Christian in the community. I think that that would have more negatives than positives. But it leaves us with a difficulty that I really don't know what to do about. But to be honest, when I see the whole dynamic of excommunication, I don't see it happening very often in churches. But what I do see happening far more often is the practice of self-excommunication. What do I mean by that? People who just check out a church. Oh, they're believers. They love Jesus. They've had some walk with him. But for some reason, they just say, no more. I'm checking out of the church thing. Maybe it happens by a deliberate decision. Maybe it happens by degrees and they just find themselves there. Now, obviously, I'm not speaking to you. You're here. But you know what? I imagine that almost every person in this room, you can think of somebody. You know somebody. Family, friend, neighbor. And you think, man, they've just checked out. They no longer hear the word together with God's people, worship together with God's people, have some sense of community and partnership together with God's people. It doesn't really matter the structure of the church or that, but they just don't have those things anymore. Can I just ask you to do something? As you think of those people, would you just say, Lord, I wanna pray for them. I wanna pray for them. That you would lead them and get them back connected to the family of God in a more healthy way. And maybe God would have you say something to them, maybe not. I mean, you'd just be led of the Holy Spirit by that. But I say you should very least pray for them. Because I think the practice of self-excommunication is far more common today than any practice of churches excommunicating people. In any regard, let's go on now to verse 24. So again, they called the man who was blind and said to him, give God the glory. We know this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Isn't that a great exchange? First of all, they're trying to mold him and guide him to an answer. Now listen, here's the answer that you're supposed to give to us. The answer you're supposed to give to us is that he, meaning Jesus, Jesus is a sinner. You better agree with us. Say it back to us now. Jesus is a sinner. And what does the man respond? He goes, hey, look, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. But I'll tell you what I do know, and you saw it right there in verse 25. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. The man who was born blind but now healed, he didn't know all that much about Jesus. But he did know that Jesus touched his life. And at that moment, the fact that Jesus touched his life was an irrefutable argument. He could say, once I was blind. You got that straight, religious leaders? You can't deny that, can you? Yeah, okay, you proved it with your parents. Now I see. You can't deny that, right? Because I can tell you what color your hair is and that you got a piece of spinach stuck in your teeth. You can't deny either one. Once I was blind, now I see. You can't deny what God has done in my life. 
Friends, this points us to a very powerful principle. And the principle is simply this. The power of our personal experience. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we do not base our faith on our personal subjective experience. We don't. We base our faith on God's word, his revelation to us. That is our foundation. But no one should mistake the value and the strength of one's personal experience, one's personal testimony of what God has done in my life to open that up. And I hope that you are able to say that. I hope that you are able, in a very brief yet cogent way, be able to describe, this is what Jesus Christ did in my life. Now, for some of you, it's easy because you got a dramatic story. I was a high-level dope dealer, and now I'm this. I was the head of a biker gang, and now this. Now, some of us who don't have such dramatic testimonies, we envy you who do. We, we think, man, I wish I could really pull out a good testimony. And other times you're trying to kind of, you know, make you sound yourself rougher than you actually were. But listen, friends, you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that at all. Is it not a wonderful testimony to say something like this? I lived in a simple, proud self-reliance, and I didn't look to God at all. Then Jesus came in my life, and I am no longer on the throne of my life, but Jesus is. Now, friends, that's a glorious testimony. I'm fully admit, it's not as dramatic as the head of the biker gang or high-level dope deal. I admit, but it is a wonderful testimony nevertheless. How about for a woman to share, you know what, I made an idol out of this and an idol out of that and an idol out of these other things that might have been good things in my life, but they were idols, things that I put before seeking God until Jesus came and touched my life. And now I've got a reordering of my priorities. Friends, that is a wonderful and a dramatic testimony saying, once I was blind, now I see. But don't miss it. There is power in your personal testimony. There is this simple idea that that, that people in our day and age, they love to try to throw these gotcha questions at Christians. Well, what about this political issue? Oh, I gotcha. Well, what about this social issue? What about this scientific issue? And they want to get you on these different things. And sometimes we're just not well equipped to answer them. Maybe we should be better equipped. Maybe we should do more research. But you just say, look, I don't know. I don't know. But this is what I do know. Once I was blind and now I see. I'll get back to you about the other questions. I'll ask people who know. I'll do a little bit of research. I'm not trying to dismiss your questions, but I'll tell you, no matter what your question about this issue or that issue, it cannot erase the truth that Jesus Christ has done a wonderful work in my life. That is something that should be on the lips of every believer. Now, if you notice, continuing on out, verse 26, then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I love this man born blind who's now healed. You know, one of the things I love about this man is he has such a simple faith in Jesus. I mean, he's just using common sense and street smarts with them. He doesn't have an elaborate religious education. Listen, before that, his business card said, blind beggar. Now, now he takes out the business card and scratches out blind. He doesn't know what his new occupation is yet. Because no education, no fancy thing. And he is talking to the top theologians of the Jewish world of that day and just simply saying, listen guys, 
if you keep asking me the same question, I'm going to keep giving you the same answer. I told you already, and you did not listen. That's how plain and simple it is. You see, it was so plain and simple to this man, and he was able to express it so. But don't you think it's interesting that the religious leaders were so blind to it? I'm fascinated by that. There it is, all right there in the man. A miraculous work had been done, and instead of rejoicing in it, they wanted to deny that it ever happened, and then they wanted to deny that Jesus was someone able to do such things. You know, it reminds us of another thing that I'll talk about as a principle here this morning, that there's more than one kind of blindness. Before this day, this man was completely blind. He couldn't see anything with his natural eyes. You could pass your hand right in front of it, he couldn't see. But you know what? Those religious leaders suffered from an even worse kind of blindness, don't you think? They were spiritually blind. The Son of God stood right before them, the creator of heaven and earth, the Messiah of God, the the hope of mankind, and they could not see him. They couldn't perceive it. Friends, that's blindness. And I worry about this. I worry about this for myself. You see, because it's very easy just for us to say, well, listen, um, I'm not blind. Let me ask you a very pointed question. Maybe you're the blind one. Now, maybe you're blind generally to spiritual things and you need to come to Jesus and surrender your life to him. Maybe you're blind in a particular area of your life. Maybe you're the blind one. I think about it for myself. Now, if your reaction to me saying that is, no way, isn't that like literally the most dangerous reaction that you could have to that? Isn't that exactly what the religious leaders would say? No way! But friends, I need to ask God all the time and continue to ask him. Listen, The reaction to that question for me and for you, maybe you're blind, is Jesus help me to see. Jesus help me to see. Jesus touch my life. You know the prayer that goes through my mind all the time? And and I pray it so much because I feel like I genuinely need it. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. That's from the Psalms. And I need it. I think we all do. But that was the question that they answered back. They they, they answered back to him. And then he asked them this great uh, response there in verse 27. Do you also want to become his disciples? You see, intending to or not, that formerly blind man mocked their prejudiced rejection of Jesus and proclaimed himself to be a disciple of Jesus. Notice the word also there. Do you also want to become Jesus? In other words, now he's identifying himself as Jesus' disciple. Verse 28, then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from. Yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone's a worshiper of God and does, not, and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. 
They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Wow, what an exchange. If you notice, first of all, they said, listen, we don't know anything about this Jesus fellow. We don't know anything about them. And the man who was formerly blind said to them, well, this is marvelous. Isn't this amazing? This man came and did this miracle and has been doing miracles all around Jerusalem and you don't know anything about him? This is amazing. You see, when he said this is marvelous, he didn't mean that the healing was marvelous. He meant that their unbelief was marvelous. And how is that so? Friends, unbelief sometimes is an amazing thing that you could be so unbelieving in light of all the evidence. That, that in light of all Jesus did, in light of all the evidence that there is, all the changed lives, all the truth in the scripture, all the fulfilled words of prophecy, all of this, all of that, and in light of that, you still don't believe? Man, that's like a miracle that you don't believe. It's not a good miracle. It's a bad miracle, but it's a marvelous thing, and that's what the man was calling them on. And then he goes on, to hear from the religious leaders, you were completely born in sins. Are you teaching us? And you see that in verse 24, and they cast him out. They excommunicated the blind man. They said, no, you are no longer with us. Now, don't be afraid. Don't be worried for the blind man. We're gonna see what God does in his life just in the next verse. Don't look yet. Before we look, come on, eyes up on mirror. Don't look at your Bible right now. We're going to see what God does with the blind man after the religious leaders excommunicated him. But I want you to consider just for a moment how they treated him. How the religious leaders treated this poor blind man. Number one, they abused him. Number two, they insulted him. I mean, when you hear, you were completely born in sins. That's pretty insulting, don't you think? And then finally, they rejected him. They cast him out. They abused him. They insulted him. They rejected him. Now, I need to kind of walk on some thin glass here, but I'll I'll risk it. Some of you, you look at that list and you say, that's been my experience with some religious people. I felt abused by them. I felt insulted by them. I felt rejected by them. You know, it's a a funny thing in the church world today um, because when you come and people come unto our church, you you never really know what they've been through. You never really know what they're coming from. But friends, if, if this is your background, if this is you, I pray that God would do a work in you just like he did in the blind man. If you feel that you have been abused, insulted, rejected by religious people or worse yet by religious leaders God has grace and love to show to you and you're going to see how he does that just in the next few verses but don't despair God has that and I just think if if you've come here kind of suffering from an ugly relationship that you had with a prior church I think God wants to do something with that. I don't know what, maybe you should talk with me, maybe another pastor on our staff. Maybe there's a way just for you to put it in the right perspective. Maybe something needs to be done, maybe nothing needs to be done. But I don't think God wants you to be burdened for the rest of your walk with him, with this cloud that covered something in your past. 
Because you look at that list and you say, that's all too familiar in my life. Now, what would Jesus want to do in your life? I think something very similar to what he did in the life of the blind man. Look at verse 35. It says there, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found them, stop right there. When he had found them, the religious leaders said to that man, get out. You can no longer come to the temple. You can no longer be in the synagogue. And what did Jesus do? Jesus said, my arms are wide open. You come unto me. Come unto me. I will receive you. They cast you out. I will receive you. And friends, if you feel like you've been treated in a bad way by believers another time, and you felt cast out by them, let me say, I don't know if I'm your answer. I don't know if this congregation's your answer, but I know for sure Jesus is your answer. Jesus says, come I will embrace you. I will find you. I will identify with you. Let me start again at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found them, he said to them, do you believe in the son of God? He answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Friends, this is a wonderful thing. Jesus deliberately and pointedly called the man to faith in himself. I want you to believe in me as God the Son and as the Son of God. I want you to believe in me, trust in me as God's Messiah. Jesus pointedly asked, do you believe I'm the guy? And the guy said, yes, Lord, I believe. And then did you see what he did? Verse 38 says, and he worshiped him. I love it. I love it for two reasons. First of all, notice the religious leaders said, you can't worship with us at the temple. And Jesus said, I will receive your worship. You come and worship me. Secondly, and I got to guard myself right here because I could go off on the next 20 minutes on this, but I'm not going to. Secondly, Jesus received the man's worship. What a evidence that Jesus understood that he was God. Because any prophet, any messenger, friends, any angel in the scriptures that a man worships before, what do they immediately say? Get up, don't worship me, worship God alone. When people came and worshiped Jesus, he said, thank you, I receive it. In any regard, I want you to notice something in this man's life. Notice the progression of God's awareness in his life. This increasing awareness, starting at verse 11. First, he says, Jesus is a man. Then in verse 17, he says, he is a prophet. Then in verse 27, he says, he's my master. I'm his disciple. Then in verse 33, he says, Jesus is from God. Then in verse 35, he says, Jesus is the son of God. Then in verse 38, he says, Jesus, I put my trust in you, my faith in you. And finally, in verse 38, Jesus says, Jesus, you are the one whom I worship. Friends, you see the progression? Now, the man stayed loyal to Jesus from the very beginning. I want you to notice, he did not betray Jesus to save his own skin. He could have. I mean, after all, the man didn't want to be excommunicated, but he said, no, I'm gonna stay loyal to Jesus no matter what the religious leaders say. And here's the principle that I think really applies to us. We understand that loyalty to Jesus brings a greater revelation of Jesus. I hope you want more of Jesus in your life. If you don't have that as an awareness, I think you want it, you just don't know you want it. You want more security in your life? You see, you might think you want a bigger bank account, but what you really want is more of Jesus. You, you want more uh, happiness in your life? You, you, you think you want entertainment and pleasure all the time, 
But what you really don't understand, you really want more of Jesus. A greater revelation of Jesus is something that every one of us need. And I'll tell you, one way to receive a greater understanding of who Jesus is and a greater personal experience of him is to be loyal to him right now. And I don't know what that means in your life. I trust the Holy Spirit will help you figure it out. I trust the Spirit of God will say to your life right now, well, this is a way you can be loyal to Jesus. This is a way you can be loyal to Jesus in secret, in private. This is a way you can be loyal to Jesus in public. But I'll just give you this general principle. A greater loyalty to Jesus leads to a greater revelation of Jesus. Now, finally, these last few verses, verse 39. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, are we blind also? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. Notice two things. First of all, verse 39 Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world. Now, some of you say, what? I thought Jesus came into the world for love, for peace, for putting daisies, you know, in the, head, in the hair of children and such. Well, no, Jesus did come for love, for peace, but he also came to divide because Jesus is the dividing line for humanity. You know what the continental divide is in the Rocky Mountains? There's a place for a section in the Rocky Mountains where a few feet separate. If a raindrop falls on this eastern side, that water will end up in the Atlantic Ocean or the Gulf of Mexico. If it falls on the western side of that divide, the water will end up in the Pacific Ocean. It's one divide, but it determines fate either way. Jesus is like that dividing line. Accept him or reject him, it determines the final destination. And that's what Jesus meant. The other thing that strikes me in those words, and I'll end with this, Notice how the religious leaders insisted. We can see. Are you saying we're blind also? Friends, this is a big deal. Let me make the analogy. It's a very simple analogy. Although it's an analogy that will only resonate with people of a certain age. If you're under 30, you're not going to get this, but you file this away because you're going to deal with it. Where suddenly you say, man, I can't read this on the page so good anymore. What's, what happened here? Why'd the words get so blurry? What's this? You panic a little bit and you go, oh no, I'm one of those old people who need reading glasses. Look, I, I went through it. I, I had my reading glasses phase. Okay, then I really got kind of vain and I got the LASIK surgery, so I still need them, but I don't need them anymore. But I remember what it was like. How long did I put off actually using reading glasses? A long time. Because I didn't want to admit that I needed them. Oh, no, I see fine, man. It's great. I'm there looking at something that's super, I can't read this at all. You know how that is? Sometimes we are so desperately afraid to admit that we have a need. That we need Jesus to begin with. Or we're desperately afraid to admit, I need to confess my sin. I need to say, maybe I've been blind in this area. Maybe I was wrong about this. We need, we need so often to prove ourselves right. And friends, there is such freedom, there's such liberty in saying, Jesus, I need glasses. Jesus, I, I, I need you to give me sight. 
Don't be afraid of it. The real problem is when we insist we see just fine because we know what the problem is then? Then it's not the fact that we're blind, but that we close our eyes. What can you do with that? Nothing. So may God help us all. May God help me to be saved from that. Father in heaven, this is my prayer. And Lord, there's many ways in which we come to you. Sometimes we very consciously come to you just in a celebration of praise. Sometimes we come to you, Lord, in sort of a confession of sin. Uh, Sometimes we come, Lord, just sort of, well, Lord, whatever you have for me today. But Lord, right now, I just very consciously want to come before you and, and represent this whole congregation and just say, Lord, we come to you with open hands. We're very conscious, God. I'm very conscious that I need you to fill me with spiritual sight, with vision, with grace, with your love, with your help. Do it, Jesus. You are a faithful God. I'm amazed, Lord, at how week after week you come here and you serve your people. Well, come, Jesus. We open up ourselves to you and we say, Lord, wash our feet, anoint our head, pour out your grace upon us because we need it now this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.